Hello, hello, my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. Thank you very much to all those who wrote to me uh, with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Again, anyone who wants to write to me, you can email me uh, to drpeterresnick at gmail.com. Since the owner of this network, Gary Nall, asked me to join the PRN, I have been sharing with you all the different tools that I have been utilizing in the 40 plus years of my clinical practice. And I think in the very first show, I told you that I was fortunate to have wonderful teachers, some of whom I knew and studied from only through their writings. Such people as uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Dr. William Glasser, and Dr. Peter Bregan. By the way, uh, I was privileged to finally meet Dr. Peter Bregan last month when he invited me uh, to be a guest on his uh, radio show here at PRN. Uh, but some of my teachers, I was very fortunate to study with in person. And these were Dr. Gerald Epstein and his teacher, who also had become my teacher, Madame Colette Abouker Muscat, may they both rest in peace. When I met Dr. Gerald Epstein 32 years ago, now exactly, I also met his wife, Rachel. And what a wonderful and incredible gift it was getting to know them both, enjoying their friendship and learning from them. Dr. Epstein founded the American Institute for Mental Imagery, a postgraduate training center for health professionals. In fact, I'm one of the graduates of the center. After Jerry's passing, Rachel Epstein became the director of the center. She continues this beautiful work of healing and educating people through the method and philosophy that her husband was so successful at and passionate about. In addition to being a graduate graduate of the American Institute for Mental Imagery. She's also an acupuncturist and a doctor of jurisprudence. Now, why am I talking about Rachel today? Because last year, along with Dr. Phyllis Kahane, she co-authored a book, Reversing the Trauma of War. Dr. Kahane is a former readjustment counselor at the San Diego Vet Center and treated a lot of veterans uh, with PTSD. Just in case someone along, uh, among the listeners is not familiar with the term PTSD, it means post-traumatic stress disorder. And guess what? Dr. Kahane and Dr. Rachel Epstein are here, our guests today. Hello, Phyllis. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Hi, it's a great pleasure to be here and to be uh, seeing you again too, Peter, after many years. Yeah, thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And before we begin the interview, if you don't mind, I would like to read, I prepared something here. I would like to read something to our audience. This is a praise for reversing the trauma of war written by Brian Masterson, who is a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, in fact, and the retired, retired colonel of the United States Air Force. Reversing the trauma of war is exceptional. It is not only a must read, but a must use, both by those suffering from PTSD and by practitioners who work with those who suffer from the ravages of war. I have found it useful both personally and in my practice of treating those who have experienced many forms of trauma. Because of the complex presentation of PTSD, this handbook should be considered a toolbox. Interesting. It provides personal vignettes and multitude guides to multi uh, manage multitude of symptoms associated with PTSD. It has been an honor to review this book, for I see it as a great resource for all who suffer from and all who treat PTSD. Rachel, Phyllis, I, I read the book, as I told you just before we started, but our listeners did not yet. So 
I would love you to share with how this book came about. Why did you decide to write it and why now? Who wants to? Phyllis, you want to start? Sure, I'll start. Well, I had been working with Dr. Epstein, Jerry Epstein, and I had been telling him about the work I was doing at the vet center using imagery. And I told him about some patients, one patient, for example, who came to me in a wheelchair and after using imagery a few months later was able to walk with a cane miraculously. So he said, you have to write a book. And Rachel and I sat down one afternoon out in the country at a beautiful table and we started outlining the book on the back of an envelope and that was the beginning. I'm sorry. I actually, you started writing it when Jerry was alive still. Yes. Right? I, oh, I yes. I realized that. Yes. Right. This um, book was started at the same time that Jerry and I started working on his last book, which is hopefully coming out uh, in September now. I know. No, I, was, mm -hmm. I think it was supposed to come out somewhere. That's in, but maybe two uh, or three years spring, ago. Right? But he's, he's talking <laughs> uh, to me from the other side saying, Rachel, it's time. <laughs> good, it had to good, ripen wonderful. in me as well as in him. Okay, wonderful. Good. So that's when you that's when you started writing. Yes. Now I I did uh, it, as I mentioned to Rachel when we started talking today, uh, as because I called my uh, this show the toolbox. I did share with uh, my listeners um, with a lot of tools that I use, including mental imagery. But I was actually excited. Uh, to hear you speak about imagery because, okay, I hear myself and my students uh, who I teach actually repeat what I say. But I would love now to hear what you have to say, how you will present mental imagery as a healing tool. So uh, if you would like to give us an idea first, um, one, one, what is mental imagery as a healing tool? Entities from other uh, methods of using imagery. So I, I like to think of imagery as uh, the mind thinking in pictures. So we're used to thinking in words all the time, and we often think that that's how we think. But really, there are other ways of thinking. We can think intuitively, and we can think in images. And uh, in fact, we think in images at all times. We're just not aware of the connection between our words and our images. So, for instance, when you go to the closet every day, you have a multiple amount of choices in America between what you uh, want to wear. So, in some way, you're imagining what you're going to wear before you take it off the shelf. So, that image might happen very quickly, but it does happen. Likewise, if you were in sports, you would be uh, uh, people who play basketball, right? They often envision the trajectory. They're aware of, of envisioning the trajectory of the ball as it leaves its hands and is going to go into the basket before they actually let go of the physical ball, right? The, mm. And in that way, imagery um, is, is happening in us all the time. So it, uh, the other way that I like to think about imagery is that imagery is the internal structure of our inner life. It's how our mind speaks to the body and gives it messages to heal because uh, you can tell your body to uh, you know, repair itself verbally, but it doesn't necessarily follow your orders. But if you do an imagery and you set an image in motion in your body, uh, it, you will have better results in uh, being able to make manifestation and change in your body. And the final way that I like to think about imagery is as a form of prayer, that we're sending up uh, a prayer to the invisible reality. And this particular uh, type of mental imagery actually comes out of a spiritual tradition. And it comes out of the tradition called the Kabbalah of Light. And here we're receiving light from above, from the invisible world, from the divine world, to illuminate what's been hidden. And once something is brought to light, 
and it, it's brought into the light and it's no longer hidden, it can be healed. Hmm. So uh, uh, do you want to add anything, Phyllis? Yeah, I just wanted to I just wanted to say that for me, this uh, this work came out of something personal. I had lived in Israel as a student from 1968 to 19, which was a very violent period. And I got shot at a lot. Things blew up around me. And I was in the library at the university and it blew up. And I became very traumatized, but didn't really realize it until some years later. And a friend sent me to Dr. Epstein. I worked with him for a couple of years and I found that doing this imagery work really healed my problems to a large degree. And at that point I had been an academic and Jerry said, you've got to do this work. So I went back to school and did a, a degree in social work and uh, started, started uh, learning this work and have found it wonderfully useful in my own life and in the work I do, wherever that is. Phyllis, if you don't mind, you know, I would like you to expand on that first experience that you shared with Jerry, working with the vet that you said that he was in a wheelchair and, and then recovered so yes. miraculously. How did it happen? What was the process? So he came in, he, he was ill and he said, all I want before I die is to be able to walk. I can't bear being in the wheelchair. So he and I together came up with some images and we came up with an imagery exercise. And he practiced that for three weeks, twice a day. And then he came back to me and uh, he, he did it again for another three week period. And the second time he came back to me after six weeks, he was able to use a walker. He was out of the wheelchair and it, using a walker. And we, we came up with another exercise that he did. And after about three months, 12 to 14 weeks, the last time I saw him, uh, he was using a cane and he had met his goal, which was to be able to walk to the mailbox near his home, which was about a block or two. And he was able to walk with a cane and walk back. And I think six or eight months later he died, but he was joyous that he had, he had, he had been able to do this and um, mm. was very important to him. Very interesting. You know, uh, Rachel was speaking about uh, imagery as light. Uh, and People worked with war trauma for many years. Even Freud started working with, with what he called war neurosis. Mm -hmm. Though from what I know, and Rachel probably knows better, and Jerry Epstein was trained for, for 11 years as a psychoanalyst, uh, that when Freud worked with people, uh, it was helping them not with the psychoanalytical approach that he used, but simply because they were sharing their pain, which means they were they were bringing to light to the surface what was under the surface. What I, from what my understanding, what you do uh, in this process, you not only bring a person the that which is hidden and painful inside, you bring it to the surface, but also you use images to transform. If I understand correctly, to transform the images that they have in their mind. Is that would it be right? Assessment. I, I think what happens is is that uh, connected to the image are beliefs, yeah. and what we're doing when you do mental imagery is actually seeding new positive beliefs into a person that then are uh, growing because we we're uh, our subjective life is a garden of inner of inner or our inner consciousness, and here we are. Uh, seeding our inner consciousness with new possibilities that uh, are and new beliefs that then take the form of images that then are lived out in the present moment as a um, as a current possibility, right? Because we're actually living out uh, this current possibility of walk of this of this man from uh, from having been in a wheelchair where he had a belief that he was stuck in a wheelchair to now giving him another positive belief that he embodied through the image 
that he's able to walk. And as it turns out, of course, is that there, when you image something in your mind, it has uh, the neurons uh, for the muscles are also uh, uh, stimulated. And that's through a process that they hypothesize that's called uh, mirror neurons or mirror, right? So when you actually imagine something without even doing it physically, you are um, setting up new uh, uh, neuronal pathways uh, of, of to heal. So this man was now not only changing his, his belief about the possibility that he could walk, and he was doing it in a with a woman who had faith that that was a possibility that was now being transmitted to him as a new possibility. Then he was enacting it, and his mind was giving his body instructions to walk, and thereafter he was able to walk. That's that's how I'm thinking about it. I, I would I would like to add that. There's also, most of us in the West go uh, go through our life on kind of a linear plane, kind of a, a horrible time, and that's how we see things. In this aim to um, make a shift to the vertical world, relationship to time and space. And so as people do imagery, it's this imagery is very short, usually under one minute, sometimes fifteen seconds, ten seconds long. It's not about uh, first you do this and then you do that, but it's about uh, being in the world in a different way. And that, in and of itself, I think reflects back to the being and creates healing. And so it's a very different way of working. You, you know, I, I got excited talking about imagery, and I apologize. I, we moved away <laughs> from something that is very important, and we, I don't think we gave enough attention to it. Phyllis, you, you mentioned your experience of living for not a month, for two, but for years uh, through these this bombs, and, and, and you write mm-hmm. about it in the book, uh, and constant threat, not only that it was happening Suddenly, like September 11 happened one time mm-hmm. here, but it was happening and it was expected to happen. Would you elaborate on it, if you don't mind, uh, on that? And then how how it affected your way of being after that? And then how you actually, step by step, were, were treated? How, how you moved on with your life, if you don't mind? Mm. Well... I'd say first, it took me a while to realize that I had PTSD because when you live in your own mind, in your own body, you don't realize there's another way of being until something is reflected back to you. And I realized after a while, you know, I was back in the Midwest at university and I was still looking for bombs. I was still uh, jumping if there was a sudden noise. And so I began to see something wasn't right. And I didn't want to live that way. And so I worked very hard with Dr. Epstein, moving through various layers of trauma, challenge, um, upset. And as I was, for example, one thing that I was envisioning was walking through a field where these uh, dead and wounded bodies were that I actually saw outside the library. And it took me quite a few weeks to be able to do that because there was a resistance. But eventually the resistance was overcome and I was able to do that. And there is a tremendous sense of, well, we know that we can rise above pain and difficulty, which is very wonderful. And it takes us through all kinds of challenges in our life. And um, the second thing is that we come to see that we can be our own healer, that we can find a way to talk to ourselves, to think differently, to take in our breath in a different way. And so we become different in the world. And I think that's what happened to me. I'll say one thing that this year of PTSD, basically I've been staying home the whole year. 
because I realized that what came back to me was this trauma as I had in war of the, the enemy was everywhere and the enemy was other people and a germ. And it took me quite a few months to recognize that. So then I started doing exercises for myself. And of course, once I got vaccinated, I'm feeling much better and much more relaxed. But these are, I think we just have more awareness um, by doing this work. The, the trigger points. You know, mm -hmm. I, I just realized something as you were speaking. Wow, it didn't. Rachel, probably you know, you remember those times. Uh, some 30 years ago, I was in, in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, visiting uh, our teacher, Madame Colette. And I stayed in the King's Hotel. Mm -hmm. And I, in, in Jerusalem, I had a very close friend, Shimon. Um, and I meet him, I, I right next to King's Hotel, there was this pizzeria. Uh, and I said, and, and before, the year before that, I was also uh, in mm -hmm. that area and we were eating pizza exactly in the same pizzeria. So I meet Shimon in this pizzeria, but it's all renovated. And I say to him, wow, it's so nice. It's completely renovated. They really invested money and made it look so nice. And he said, they rebuilt it because there was a, a, a suicide bomber and there were like 30 people in all the brains and parts of the mm -hmm. body. And he said, I happened to be in the area and I was one of the people who ran when the explosion happened. Mm -hmm. And one, once he told me this, and again, I did not witness it, but once he told me that for a while, I'm thinking about it now, what I was kind of walking around i did not go to that pizzeria i don't think that i ever did again mm -hmm. and, and you could probably say that that was a, a, a ptsd kind of uh, not ptsd because there was no trauma but but maybe emotional somehow i i got even it's kind of uh how, how would you say it through through imagination you can have mm -hmm. negative images through sure. images, because I, I actually imagined that I would be there and it would happen to me. Well, it could, a year earlier, it could have been you, I, the day that you yes. were there. But, yes. And also yes. when he tells you the story, I think you're picking up his vibration around um, well, the memory oh. that's encapsulated. And also you are imagining yourself because as these, whenever we hear a story, we put ourselves somewhere in that story. That's why mirror neurons are working. He's telling now he's not doing it, the action anymore, but he's relating it to you. And it's becoming a lived experience for you on some way, which is why, uh, you know, you watch a horror movie like uh, Silence of the Lambs. And I always leave because if I don't mm -hmm. leave when I see these very violent acts, it reverberates in me for many, many days. Not just that night I can't sleep, but it, it's it's lurking in me all the time. And I think where this was uh, an actual experience with uh, Shimon and you were so close to him that it's natural that you would take on his uh, trauma in some way vibrationally. That's, wow, that's, I, I didn't think about it because it just came to me as we were talking. But honestly, as when I was telling you this, I got goosebumps just recalling this experience. And possibly, you know, I connect again with Shimon, particularly that like, no, he is no longer alive, unfortunately. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so, now, so one you, of the, yes. can I, I just want to say that yeah. although this book was written for um, war trauma, uh, it was really written as a manual for people who are suffering from trauma to um, not have to deal with the worst of their trauma at first. But instead, it's organized on simple everyday phenomenon that they're meeting up with that are giving them problems where they're still showing hypervigilance. So it's like peeling off an onion. Because when you go back, as, as Phyllis said, she was working with a clinician and she didn't uh, and and to go and reverse the memory and correct that memory and relive the memory in a new way took time. 
So the book was structured to allow people to first deal with their most immediate issues. So there's a section, and it, so it's divided on those issues because different people with PTSD, as you said, it manifests in many different ways. Some people are feeling very anxious. Some are, you know, they're very hypervigilant when they're driving. Others are feeling isolated. Others are dealing with addictions. So it allows the person to really pick out um, and start with where they are and allow them to build up a muscle to, um, to begin to, to see that they actually their minds are very powerful and that if they've uh, created a PTSD situation, they have the possibility to reverse the, that, that, um, those memories as well. And because it is uh, so... Um, uh, it starts out from sort of um, uh, an everyday viewpoint of trauma. Uh, it really ha uh, can be used for many, many people, which is why I think that you, you know, you particularly enjoyed it because there were so many imagery exercises for guilt and for insomnia and for anxiety uh, uh, and for hypervigilance. Yeah, and what we're finding is people are buying it, let's say for a veteran, and then the veteran's giving it to his sister or his wife, who was never in trauma, but they're using it for things like sleep difficulty. Mm. And it's, there's something here for everyone. And it's very, it's very easy to use. And um, uh, we're very excited at the reception it's getting. But would you, would you like, would you mind uh, uh, giving an example or uh, guiding uh, those who would be interested in having the experience through some of the exercises? Because people also some of, uh, or, or many, and again, I never know, I know uh, after the show approximately how many people listen to the show, but I never know at the moment of the show who is actually listening. So maybe some, uh, right now, uh, uh, very few people who have been through mental exercises that I offered uh, are here, maybe maybe many. So uh, I would say some of people who who will be participating today did have the experiences with mental imagery, at least the ones that we know, because I have done it uh, on a number of times, but some did not. So uh, first, give kind of an introduction of what you and to, to do, uh, uh, how to prepare themselves for the exercise. So I would say guide them as if as if they do not know, assume that they do not know how to do imagery. Rachel, do you want to go through an exercise? Sure. So uh, what I'm going to do is give you an exercise that I was given personally by Colette, and uh, it was at a different, uh, a difficult point in my life. And uh, she, it's called the Blue Sky Umbrella. And to do imagery is very simple. You can do it um, sitting up in a chair. And if you're not able to sit up in a chair, you can do it even lying down. But generally, we do it uh, sitting up. And uh, you just put your arms in the arms of the chair, if you have uh, arms of a chair. Or you just put your arms, your uh, hands in your lap. And you close your eyes. And you sit up in a relaxed manner. And you start to... Uh, do some three relaxing breaths. And these are breaths that are not only relaxing you, but they are also um, allowing you to turn inside and to focus on your inside life because we're turning all our senses inward. Most of the time, our senses are outward. We're looking around, hearing, and uh, sensing the outside world. And here we're wanting to turn in to our inside world, to our subjective world. So, we start by breathing out uh, through our mouths. So you take a long exhalation through your mouth with a mouth that's opened and relaxed. And then take a normal inhalation through the nose. And then take another long, slow exhalation through the mouth. And a normal inhalation through the nose. And then one more long, slow exhalation through the mouth. And now you don't need to focus on your breathing anymore. And imagine you have an oversized umbrella. Open this umbrella 
and see that it covers you with a cloudless, bright blue sky that extends outward in all directions. And the sky is covering you and protecting you and your loved ones. And breathe out and open your eyes. So this imagery exercise is to lift us out of despair, create protection. Uh, it can even be used for anxiety. It's very for, uh, versatile um, imagery and you can see that it just takes seconds. And if you find yourself anxious or uh, despairing, you can even while you're walking on the street, imagine with your eyes opened that you have this huge blue sky umbrella surrounding you and protecting you. One thing we talk about in the book is that the breathing aspect of this work is important. And by taking three slow breaths, it really does change our, our way of being, our feeling inside ourselves. And so sometimes it can be enough to, you're stopped at a stop sign, you're waiting for an appointment, just to take three slow breaths and you can come back to a balance that you didn't feel before. So, uh, you know, Phyllis has uh, an example in the book she writes about of uh, a vet she worked with who uh, was working in a, in a big store and he would get anxious all of a sudden. But I don't know whether he wasn't an imager or not, but he would just go and separate himself and go into a closet for a few minutes into the storage room and just do the simple breathing. And that alone was enough to uh, have him come into a state of balance and to relax the hyperactivity of the sympathetic system that was getting into an emergency state, you know, that was triggered by, by uh, all the people in the store and come back and relax into a parasympathetic state and then go out and continue to do his job. So, yeah. That's very nice, yeah. I, I, I can think of an example with myself. I'm much better all around with PTSD symptoms, but I still don't do well in crowds. And a few years ago, I found myself in New York City in Times Square and we were crushed. I mean, there were so many people and I started to panic and I found a doorway and I just stood there and I did some breathing and I was okay enough to, to walk to another street where it was less crowded. So this is a good thing to, to remember, I think. Yeah. I, I just want to share another little story about <laughs> Peter. When I was taking my uh, boards, uh, by the way, Peter offered to give me hypnosis before my children's birth. And I said, no, I'm going to do it naturally, right? <laughs> I did have easy births, but in retrospect, I think I was sort of foolish not to go and take it. But when he offered to give me some hypnosis to calm down before my law boards, where they, uh, if, you, if, you, if anyone's taken the law boards, you know that they cram about four years of information mm -hmm. in, in two months into your brain that you promptly forget. But um, he gave me a tape that I listened to sporadically for passing the board. To, and I remember being in, taking the boards. And what he told me to do was every time I got to a question that I was not, you know, that I was, you know, upset about is to exhale. And that's what I remember from the tape that you gave me, actually. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what you oh, remember, but that's what I remember. I don't and, remember anything now. I don't I remember actually making test. a tape for you. I got out of the that test. That was a long time. It was a long, long time ago, and I knew that I had passed. There was wow. an absolute certainty. And nice. uh, so the breathing shows up in many, many um, disciplines, right? That breath is this fundamental way of uh, coming back to ourselves, of relaxing, of coming back into a parasympathetic state. Yeah, actually, when when somebody you know somebody is anxious and and somebody else says, "Oh, just relax, take a few deep breaths," they actually do disservice to this person, because when you take a deep breath, when you inhale, you stimulate your sympathetic nervous system, but it is when you exhale, mm -hmm. you That's stimulate true. vagus, which is a quieting nerve that goes from the brain to the lungs, heart, and stomach. So it's very important that our listeners remember that if they feel kind of uneasy or anxious to 
breathe out slowly. Start by breathing out. And very often people say, how can you breathe out without breathing in? Absolutely you can. For example, we speak on exhalation. Look, I'm speaking now and I still will have something to exhale. Mm-hmm. So you always start by long, slow exhalation and not, then the regular inhalation. And of course, yoga teaches this forever. There is a whole series of exercises in yoga that is based basically on, on breaths out. There are different forms that are designed to specifically to relax anxiety. And I think so, in imagery, what we want to do is to take these several relaxing breaths starting on the exhalation and of course as you said there's always an inhalation but we're not focusing on that we're always focusing on the exhalation to start with and a normal inhalation and but we don't want to get too relaxed and that's why in imagery we usually try and sit up and we also don't do too much relaxing breathing just enough to be able to turn our senses inward and then go into the imagery. And the imagery always actually, good imagery um, can often start with a little tiny shock and then go into um, a state of uh, resolution that calms the system again. Could you elaborate, Rachel, on what you said, a little shock? What do you mean? So... uh, there's often in our lives, outside our lives, we're always confronted with shocks. And, in a, and the way I was taught is that in some imagery, you actually build the imagery to have a shock, right? So this is, this is still called scripted imagery. But the way that we mostly um, have a shock is by actually facing whatever we need to face. So Colette would often give... Um, uh, uh, would would give an imagery exercise where you would see a snake coming towards you. Well, that's a little bit of a mini shock, right? And then mm-hmm. would ask you, how do you disarm the snake? And by seeing that, she would get a picture, a hologram of who you were by how you uh, dealt with the snake and how you disarmed the snake. Some people would have a machete. Some people would twist it and not hurt it. Some people would go and catch it. Some people would run away. So the image is telling us information about ourselves and she's eliciting it by giving us a slight shock in order mm-hmm. to see how we're going to respond to the world because we're always responding to the world or we are retreating from the world. That's what we do muscularly, right? So we're yeah. either fighting, we're flighting, and sometimes we just uh, get frozen and we stay still. Uh, would you give uh, some exercise? I know each person is unique and, and each trauma is quite unique and it depends on, um, on the person's background, on the person's natural resilience but yet there are there are probably some generic exercises that you could offer people who didn't necessarily go through war but are traumatized uh, by some experience uh, would you would you uh, give us a, an exercise or a sample of an exercise to deal with some kind of event that uh, that uh, that a person is drawn to over and over and sometimes it becomes an obsession. So, right. So what I think we're going to do is just tell you how you reverse memories, because we haven't discussed that at all. So yeah, in this work, uh, reversing was a fundamental um, concept where we are doing something in a new way, right? We're, we're taking a memory, which we think is very fixed, but actually memories are quite malleable. And we are going to correct it very simply in our mind's eye through a very simple imagery exercise. So I'm going to give you an example of how that happens, uh, a clinical example. So um, Jerry used to tell me the story of he had a a client who had a very, very uh, difficult relationship with his mother. And uh, he hadn't spoken to the mother in 10 years. So... Jerry said to him, uh, let's go and correct the relationship you're having with your mother. So is there one memory that encapsulates the entire 
your entire relationship with your mother. And the man who was about in his 40s said, yes, I'm in an, a, a um, department store with, this mo- with my mother. And I'm, you know, like five or six. And I'm very, very, uh, you know, I'm a wild kid. I'm running down the aisles. And my mother is getting very upset with me. And she grabs me. And she takes me by the ear and drags me out of the store. So Jerry said, okay, let's go back and correct that memory. And uh, very simply, you go, he, the uh, young man did, did the exercise, right? He breathes out, he closes his eyes, he breathes out three times slowly. And he goes back to that moment in time where his mother is grabbing him, where he's being, making a ruckus in the store. And this time, when she grabs him by the ear, he takes his little hand, takes her hand off of his ear, and places his hand into her hand, and they walk slowly out of the store. After this young man did this exercise, he was able to call her and resume a relationship with her after having not spoken to her in 10 years. So that's a simple everyday uh, uh, memory um, that was getting in the way of his relationship because it was, and again, it was embedded both in his body and his beliefs, his mental life, his imagery life, his social life with his mother, and also his um, spiritual life, which we, we, in terms of not being able, for instance, to honor his mother. Uh, so what we're always doing, so I had another example where people go in, you know, like a, a young man told me yesterday that he had a memory of some of his boss yelling at him. So he corrected the memory and he corrected the memory by growing 10 times taller than the boss and going and speaking to the boss and telling the boss what he needed to say that had been unsaid. So it's another way. Uh, Phyllis, you want to add something? Yeah, I was thinking in, uh, in that vein, uh, there was a period where I was doing a lot of job interviews, and Jerry gave me this idea. I would stand outside the door for 30 seconds before I went in. I would I would see everybody in my mind's eye approving of me. I would see myself as much taller than they were and very confident, and I saw myself answering every question beautifully. And then I would go in the room, every interview went well. And during that period, I think I got a second interview each time. So these things are, part of it is belief, belief creating reality. And part of it, I think, is um, just like throwing, uh, picturing the basketball before it goes in the hoop. We're picturing ourselves uh, succeeding, picturing ourselves in a situation we want to be in. So it's it's thinking about things in a way that's positive and helpful. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I want people to carry away this, this understanding that when they do imagery, it's not just, okay, I imagine it, it's not a big deal. You know, I made myself feel good for a moment. But our brain actually does not see the difference between the physical outer event and the image that happens in our mm-hmm. mind. So, Phyllis, when you, uh, my understanding, I know you understand it too. Yes. When you imagine yourself going successful through the interview, your brain registered it. And so when you went on the interview, it's as if you already have been through the interview. Yes. And as if those people already greeted you and yes. you were successful. So now you walked in projecting that confidence of success. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And we, you know, Rachel and I use it in everyday things. I had some uh, tooth pulled and I had pain. And so I visualize, you know, I had a vision of of cooling blue around my gums and uh, all kinds of uh, healing, little things going on inside my gums. And I I had much less pain without taking any painkiller. So, again... There's so many ways that we can use this kind of work. Uh, I, uh, does uh, either of you want to talk uh, a little bit about imagery that may be uh, not user-friendly, so to speak? We, we know that how uh, useful imagination can be, but it can be also harmful. 
it depends on uh, the choices that you make, if you don't mind uh, elaborating on it. Well, I think that we uh, all use our minds and our, our imaginal capacity for uh, 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 not life-giving processes all the time. So uh, in general, what you fixate on and believe sort of manifests, right? Our beliefs create our experience. And we're often using our minds um, in destructive ways. And imagine, you know, when we imagine conversations with people uh, uh, that are destructive to us, or we picture things in the future, we imagine the future of how it's going to turn out. We're unfolding the memory, the expectation that things aren't going to work out well. Uh, so are there, and, but I think you asked me, are there times when we shouldn't be imaging, where, where imaging can be harmful to you? Yes. Well, no more to speak about uh, the images that are harmful and how you transform them into positive images. Because if you stick to those harmful images, then the images become uh, your outlook on life and it become the become your physiology as well. So I think we can always use imagery uh, if we're, uh, for instance, if we're having an, um, a distressing emotion, we can ask ourselves, what's the emotion look like? Mm -hmm. okay, and then we can ask ourselves to reverse it, to correct it, to change it. So, for instance, um, if I'm angry, I can use imagery and say, oh, my imagery looks like a volcano. And then I can see, and, and if I were to correct that image, because remember, every word has a, a related image, although we're not used to thinking it that way, right? So when we do imagery, we're really bringing them together again. So if I'm angry, I can keep this image of a volcano and then see a gentle rainstorm putting out the volcano. Or if I see a volcano and I want to think, okay, a volcano is anger. Well, what's the opposite of anger? Calm. And what's the, uh, what's the image that goes with calm? A lot of people see uh, a water, a clear, you know, like a lake or, or um, a quiet water or, or the ocean, a gentle ocean coming, you know, the waves coming in and out. So when I feel myself being angry, I can use in the image constructively to uh, relax. I think we can um, also say no to images that seem negative. Just say no. Uh, a while ago, I had a, a medical test and it wasn't so positive and they were going to do another one. And my mind started to go to all the, the problems that could be in the future and with the, how bad this might turn out. And I said to myself, no, we don't have the, the information. So I'm going to sit here and be neutral. I'm not going to let myself go in that direction. And that's how I function. I Once I did that, I realized that's a really good way to be. And I think uh, I think we can do that in so many aspects of our life that we, you know, we expect things to go poorly. But if we don't focus on it or we refuse it, um, it, it won't go in that direction. I, I think an inherent piece of this work is that the past is finished and done with mm -hmm. and the future doesn't exist. And we want to keep ourselves centered in the present moment. Uh, really facing what's in front of us without making up a lot of stories about what might be in the future or what should have been in the past. Mm -hmm. Or what was in the past and it's going to happen again. Yes. You know? So I had cancer 20 years ago, so I'm going to have it again. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. But particularly that when you have those images of doom and gloom, you are actually beginning to align your physiology mm -hmm. to the images right. that you, you are having. Right. Exactly. So that comes back to the blue sky umbrella, because really what it is, it's pushing away the clouds of doom and gloom that are often uh, over us. And so now in COVID, there are, you know, there's this whole, um, there's a collective feeling of, of gloom over us. So if each of us can, uh, can, push aside that gloom and establish in our subjective selves a, a more positive outlook, 
you know, that there is a blue sky awaiting us, then we'll change the collective vibration on the planet. And so that's another sort of meta use of uh, imagery. And you know that in many spiritual traditions, people get together and they imagine together. They use their collective imaging powers both to help heal uh, an individual or to heal the planet. Another another aspect yeah. of what Rachel is saying is to learn to not take things so personally. That there is this collective thing that, you know, for example, right now in COVID times, everybody's in pain. And uh, there are things that happen to us that aren't particularly personal. And so if we can begin to think that way and process that way, it, it's very freeing and liberating. And we have a different life. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. I just want to to mention, you know, you guided people through a couple of exercises, but I would very much recommend everyone to, who is listening to this talk to to get the book Reversing the Trauma of War, because uh, there are so many wonderful exercises here, not only, as I said, not only regarding the war trauma, you hear about Exercises on addiction, anxiety, anger, depression, nightmares, guilt, hypervigilance, insomnia, flashbacks, pain. So to me, it, it, this book looks like a wonderful, really step-by-step -step manual on, on gaining self-mastery. Believe it or not, we're actually, an hour is coming from end. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, you know, time flies very quickly. Uh, so I want to fill it some... Uh, Rachel, I want to thank you so, so much for coming to this interview. And I love the book. And I love talking to you and reconnecting with you after all these years. <laughs> thank uh, you very much. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank and you. It's to, really been an honor to, to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And to everyone, our hour together is coming to an end. Thank you very much for being with us today. I, I hope you to have your attention uh, next week and peace to all who want to live in peace. Adelante, get up to the beat, adelante to the beat, I say goomba. Come on, baby, here, take it, move it, keep it,